I mentioned one other thing that I would appreciate your prayers on behalf of uh, my cousin, my first cousin, uh, Tommy Reynolds. Um, most of you don't know him as Tommy Reynolds. You would know him as Tommy Jett, most likely, from 1961 and following uh, as a radio personality, but uh, Tommy is in extremely critical condition uh, right now at Memorial Hospital, and the family has been uh, called in, and uh, his condition has not changed from yesterday. I saw on WRCB's Facebook, he's a good friend of David Carroll, one of the anchors there, and uh, David had posted uh, a post this afternoon there. I visited with Tommy the other day in the hospital, and he um, it's inexplicable, really, as to exactly what is happening, but he simply cannot eat and uh, uh, cannot stand the sight of food or the smell of food, and uh, that day I was with him, he had had one glucerna all day long. He's just wasting away, and um, I don't know that they've really identified everything. He had a very serious car accident back in April. I had a blackout because of a diabetic coma. He's been diabetic for many years. And uh, he blacked out and had a very serious car wreck. And in the repair work they did on his broken neck, apparently they did something to the esophagus uh, in almost sewing it to the neck or something to that effect. And uh, for a long time, they didn't realize what had happened. When they discovered that, they corrected that. But as he told me the other day, he said, there's still, I think there's still something going on. I just cannot, uh, cannot eat. And uh, he was pitiful, really pitiful. And, uh, uh, at this point in time, things are not looking good, but I know the family has, has asked uh, for a concern, and obviously uh, I would ask also for your prayers uh, that he might uh, recover and uh, have more years uh, here. Tommy's a very family-oriented uh, person, and every time he calls me, uh, he'll call and say, your cousin here, and then we'll reminisce about, <laughs> about uh uh, things from years gone by. He loved to reminisce. He has always loved family. He and I spent a lot of time down on his uncle's farm when we were kids, and he was growing up and I was growing up. He's about six years older than I, but uh, we spent a lot of time together, and uh, certainly we're concerned about him and would appreciate your prayers uh, uh, on his behalf that he might be able to uh, recover. We are studying the book of Thessalonians, the first epistle of Thessalonians on Sunday nights in an expository uh, series, and uh, we are in chapter 2, ready for verse 13 and following, and uh, we will look at verses 13 through 20, the Lord willing tonight, and um, I have uh, divided these verses up in the following way. As we look at uh, verse 13... Uh, we are reminded here in Paul's writing of the reception of the Thessalonians, their reception of Paul's preaching, how they received it. And then in the uh, uh, next uh, two uh, verses or three, we see the reaction of the Thessalonians to the persecution that followed their reception of the word. And then finally in verses 17 through 20, we see the reunion they anticipated in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll see their reception and then their reaction to persecution and finally the reunion that they anticipated. And as we look especially at that reunion, we will see something there that is most encouraging to us as we anticipate that eternal reunion with the faithful when this life is over. But in verse 13, Paul writes, For this 
reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. This is a very powerful verse on the power of the Word of God. And indeed, we need to appreciate the all-sufficiency and the power of the Word of God and the work that it is capable of doing if we truly allow it to work in us. There's an emphasis here on how they had received the Word of God, and they received it with open hearts. They welcomed that Word. And that in itself is a very important lesson for us to appreciate. Attitude is so crucial. Attitude is absolutely crucial as we approach the study of the Word of God. How will we approach our study of the Word of God? Will we approach the study of the Word of God with a, with a dogmatic attitude? That is, will we predetermine that indeed this book is going to say something to me that I am sure that it, that, it, uh, that it needs to say to me and that I already have a preconceived idea about and therefore as I go to the study of that word I'm going to look for what I already believe it to say or is my attitude going to be that I will simply open my mind as Lydia's mind was opened by the word of God in Acts 16 for example and truly, truly accept at face value, what this word says. We talked about that this morning as we analogized um, the word of God and the communication of that word to man with, with the mailman and some points about uh, the mailman. And uh, uh, he delivers only that which is written. And God has delivered what is written to us. And it has the power, it has the, the inherent power, as it were, to transform our lives. And if we needed any proof of that, Paul supplies it here for us in this statement that he makes. He does not, he does not exalt uh, the miraculous confirmation of the word that was indeed available at this particular time and, and needed at this time to confirm the word, something not needed now because we do have it confirmed for us in its written form, but he doesn't exalt that even at a time when that confirmation was needed and was, was being given. What he does exalt is the power of the word of God itself. That they had received the word of God and that they welcomed it and they recognized it not as being Paul's words, that is from human origin, but they recognized it as being truly the word of God. And that God, through the Apostle Paul and others who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, were delivering to them the very words of Almighty God. And having delivered those words, Paul and others, we have them now recorded for us so that we know we have that same word today with that same inherent power. God's dynamite, if you will. Not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul elsewhere wrote. For it, singularly, is the singular power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, Romans 1 and verse 16. Here we are reminded not only of the power of that word, but the productivity of that word. Because notice what he says. It is in truth the word of God, which also what? Effectively works in you who believe. It's powerful and it is productive. It will work in us. Now here's an interesting analogy. Think about what Paul says. He says here 
that the word of God is working in you who believe. That is those of you who have obeyed that word and who are walking in that word. But I want you to notice another statement from the same pen of the same apostle to another church, this one at Philippi, as he expresses confidence in those at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. He says this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ. I have confidence in you Philippians that that's going to be the case. Who is the he who had begun that work in the Philippians? God. He'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I have confidence that he will. That is until the Lord comes again. But notice he says God began that work in them. But how did he begin that work in those at Philippi? Who was the first convert? Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened that she might what? Heed the things that were what? Spoken by Paul. Gets us right back to the all-sufficient, all-powerful Word of God. God who began that work in you, how? Through the Word of God. God who began the work in the Thessalonians, how? By the Word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the Word of men, but it, as it is in truth, the Word of God, which... Which, that's the word, which the word effectively works in you who believe. Doesn't that remind us of the all-sufficiency of this book and the power that it has to transform our lives? We don't need something to bring to life, so to speak, that which is already living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword as the Writer of Hebrews declares in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, How powerful is that word according to that text? Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What is that discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart? This powerful, all-sufficient word of God. It is living and active. And it is powerful enough to transform any life today as it transformed the lives of these Thessalonians, but the key is whether we welcome it as the word of God and not of men, or do we reject it as something other than what it truly is, the word of God which can work effectively in us. And what is a part of that productivity that the word of God produces? Verse 14 tells us, for you brethren became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. The churches of God, that is those congregations, those different locations of the church of the Lord, the church of God as it's called here, one of the scriptural designations for the church. We also see in Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ salute you. Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Again, the churches of Christ. Here, the churches of God. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 1, the church of God which is at Corinth is addressed. Scriptural designations for the church of the Lord. The churches. These are different congregations. And he says, when you obeyed the gospel and became a, a church of the Lord in your location at Thessalonica... He said, you became what? 
like the churches of God which are in Judea. You became imitators of them. You were like them. He's not saying that you imitated them as being your model and that you looked up to them as the mother church or something of that nature. No, indeed. Every congregation, according to the Lord's scriptural organizational pattern, is autonomous and independent. But what he means, obviously, here is that you became like them because you obeyed the same truth they had obeyed. And anywhere and in every place where men and women welcome the Word of God and obey it completely, they will be added to the church we read about in the New Testament, and they will be like others who have done that same thing in location after location after location anywhere on this globe. And they will be of like mind if indeed they're following that same pattern. But he's saying here you, in this context, became imitators of these churches in this important sense. Notice what he goes on to write. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Let's go on. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and are contrary to all men. In other words, he said your situation was like those in Judea. And that brings us to the reaction to the persecution that they suffered. Their reception of the word was wonderful. They welcomed it. Now their reaction to the persecution that followed is what? They persevered. Why? Because they had truly been converted and had the kind of strength necessary not to falter when persecution arose, but to stand firm when persecution arose. And the point is this. If we truly welcome the Word of God, understand it to be the powerful Word that it is, if it truly transforms our lives, we can also be prepared to stand against persecution, whatever form it may take. And this church at Thessalonica was to be commended, and Paul is commending them because they withstood persecution. What kind of persecution? From their own countrymen, just as those churches in Judea suffered from their countrymen, the Jews. So the own, the own, the, uh, their own countrymen here, or your own countrymen here in verse 14, the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians rather, would be, would be pagans for the most part, the church being made up of Gentiles for the most part. And so he's saying that your countrymen, these pagan Gentiles, persecuted you as the Jews persecuted those in Judea because there were Jews there who were persecuting the church there. But isn't it interesting that even though their own countrymen were pagan Gentiles to whom persecution is attributed, who was it that instigated that persecution even against the Thessalonians? The Jews did, remember? It was the Jews. Look back with me at Acts chapter 17 where we find the beginning of the church at Thessalonica. What is said here in verse 5 of Acts 17? This is after some had been converted. Look back at verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. They were meeting with success. Who was it that instigated the persecution? Read verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, the who? 
the Jews who were not persuaded, they, that is, they weren't converted, the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Who started the trouble? The Jews did. The Jews who persecuted those churches in Judea really instigated the persecution at Thessalonica, even though they were pagan Gentiles who were stirred up to launch that or to carry on that persecution to a great extent. It was instigated by the Jews. And how does Paul describe them in verse 15? He does not mince words. As he says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and are contrary to all men. What a tragedy that those to whom the oracles of God had first been committed in those Old Testament writings had failed for the most part to see the Savior contained in those Old Testament writings and to see him as the fulfillment of the prophecy. Prophecy after prophecy in those Old Testament books and they rejected him out of envy and killed the Son of God. I remember when I was preaching in Houston, we had a, a one-minute radio program on a station in Houston entitled One Minute Walks on the Pathway to Peace. We brought that title over and used some of those on GBN for a period of time. And in one of those one-minute walks, I had mentioned something about the Jews crucifying Jesus in one of those segments. And uh, got a call from the radio station, as I recall, and uh, they had received a call from some lady who was quite upset because I had said the Jews killed Jesus and uh, asked me if I would call her, as I recall, and chat with her about it, and, and uh, I did. And I never did convince her in that phone conversation that the Jews were responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. She kept insisting it was the Romans. The Romans did it, not the Jews. You said the Jews did it, and they did not. The Romans did it. Well, it was not I who said the Jews did it. Peter said the Jews did it. And Paul has just said the Jews did it. If you look back at Acts chapter 2, and that doesn't mean every Jew was responsible and that every Jew today is uh, uh, responsible directly for the crucifixion of Christ. We're all responsible for the crucifixion of Christ in one real sense, aren't we? Because sin caused him to go to Calvary. And we all sinned and, come, and have come short of the glory of God. But in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 or verse 22 to gain the context, men of Israel, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Oh yes, the Roman authorities were the ones who actually did the crucifying act because they had the authority to do it and the Jews didn't have the authority by the Romans to put him to death. But the Jews instigated it and they were responsible as well. They weren't the only guilty ones. 
but they were guilty nonetheless. And Paul affirms that again here. But he also affirms elsewhere in his writings that any Jew, any Jew who is willing, as is the case with anyone outside of Christ, who's willing to come to Christ through obedience to the gospel, can be forgiven and can become a child of God. They kill both the Lord Jesus, their own prophets, have persecuted us. They do not please God and are contrary to all men. Anyone outside the Jewish body, as it were, they were hostile toward. Is what are you saying. And notice this further in verse 16. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. They were persistent and they were consistent and they were fervent in their opposition to the gospel. And they kept on being fervent in their opposition to the gospel so as to, in effect, fill up the measure of their sins in the sense that their iniquity was full and had reached that point of full and running over, is the idea here in this verse. Now he says, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. They had opportunity after opportunity in the day of Jesus himself, didn't they? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the Lord said on one occasion, who killed the prophets, etc. I would have taken you under my wings, remember, like a, a hen with her chicks. But you would not. You would not. And then he predicted what would happen. You're going to be leveled, not one stone left upon another. And Paul here obviously refers to the wrath of God that had already come upon them and it would come to the uttermost ultimately culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But it is spoken of in the past tense as though it as, is as good as accomplished because they were persisting in their opposition to the truth. How sad. And about 18 years from the time that Paul penned these words, about 18 years later, the destruction of Jerusalem occurred in A.D. 70. They were great persecutors, many of them, but the reaction to their persecution on the part of the Thessalonians was commendable and exemplary. And we need to imitate, as they imitated the churches of God in Judea, we need to imitate them in being willing to suffer shame for the cause of Christ and to resist and react as God would have us react to any persecution that would come. We resist it in a Christian fashion and react to it not with faltering but with faithfulness as we understand the last part of our lesson tonight, that as we do react to persecution faithfully, we have something awaiting us that no one can take away from us in this life. Even if they kill us, they can't take away the reunion about which Paul next writes in the latter part of our study tonight. He says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence not what? Not in heart. Endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. This is a poignant passage here. 
because you remember that as Paul was at Thessalonica and had been involved in the conversion of so many of these Thessalonians and the Jews stirred up the whole city and got them in an uproar and it became necessary for Paul to be escorted out of the city prematurely long before he wanted to leave the city and to go on down to Berea, remember? That, no doubt, is what he's referring to here, that I had intended to be with you longer. Remember, he has referred to them in the parent-child relationship. Back in verse, uh, verse 7, we were gentle among you of chapter 1, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Then in verse 11 of chapter 1 of our study, remember, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. He depicts his relationship to the Thessalonians as a parental relationship. And that's interesting because here, as he writes, having been taken away, that phrase taken away comes from a word from which we get our word orphan. Our word orphan. The idea of being torn away from a parent. The idea of being separated as an orphan is separated from parents. That's how he depicts his being taken away from them. I was like a father to you. I was like a nursing mother to you. I had that wonderful relationship and I intended for that relationship to last much longer. But interference with that caused me to be torn away from you like a parent is torn away from a child. I was orphaned from you for a short time in presence but not in my heart because I still had you in my heart. There's the kind of depth of love that we ought to have for every other child of God and the kind of relationship that we ought to sustain to one another. And so he said, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, not just sending Timothy to you as he would do later, but I myself emphasis here it seems I Paul time and again I personally wanted to come but notice he says but Satan hindered us how did Satan hinder Paul from rejoining the Thessalonians we don't know any anything we offer would be simply a conjecture a guess but it does indicate that something he encountered that was authored by Satan kept him from being where he would really have liked to have been because he had to deal with other things and he attributed that distraction to Satan because Satan indeed will do everything he can to distract us. He'll do everything he can to ultimately destroy us. He's not saying that some sin entered his life in that sense. No, he's not saying that. He's just saying that Satan's workings and Satan's workings are effective, we must admit, and we do have to recognize his power as a roaring lion that he goes about seeking whom he may devour, that he also transforms himself into an angel of light. Yes, Satan is a powerful foe. And Paul recognizes that. And on some occasion, and because of some circumstance that he attributed to Satan, he said... I was not able to rejoin you as I had hoped I would be able to. I had to take care of other things because of some work that Satan had obviously done, it seems. But then we come to the last two verses. 
And thus the eternal reunion is in his mind as he writes these words. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? In other words, he's saying this to reinforce what he has just said about how eager he is to see them face to face again. And he reinforces that by saying this. What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you, you Thessalonians, are our glory and joy. In other words, what he's saying here is that I am anticipating an eternal reunion with you. When the Lord comes again, or when we all die, and we stand before the Lord ultimately, he said, that is my hope, that is my joy, that is my crown of rejoicing to be able to stand with you in the presence of the Lord and to hear those words said to you, well done, good and faithful servant. That will be my glory and my joy to hear you approved by God in Christ in the judgment. Oh, and there are many passages that can be brought in to, to correlate with this one. Because what he's saying here is, you're my converts. You are my converts, and if you as my converts remain faithful even until the coming of the Lord or until death, whichever occurs first, then I will rejoice over you. I will rejoice over you in the judgment. Reminds us of what Paul wrote in the first Corinthian letter, and we've talked about this text on more than one occasion. But briefly, let's review it. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then he says, now if anyone builds on this foundation, he's going to begin now to discuss converts. Building on the foundation of Christ by converting people to Christ, adding them to that foundation. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation, what? Here's the material. Gold, silver, precious stones, and then he says wood, hay, and straw. Different kinds of materials. Each one's work will become manifest. Each one's convert will become manifest. For the day, what day? The day of fiery trial. The kind of persecution we're talking about right here in this lesson tonight that came to the Thessalonians. That was the day of, that was the day of trial for them. Would they endure that trial or would they falter after shortly becoming Christians when persecution arose? That depended on what kind of material they were, which is the kind of material Paul is describing here. What kind of material will endure the fiery trial of persecution? Gold? Yes. Silver? Yes. Precious stones? Yes. Wood? No. Hay? No. Straw? No. That'll burn up. In other words, that'll falter in the day of the fiery trial. The day will declare it because it will re be revealed by fire. Now we know what kind of fire we're talking about. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. He's not talking about the fires of hell. He's talking about the fires of trial that will what? Be a test to the converts that have been built upon the foundation, the only foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And if they're made of the right stuff, they will endure. And if they're not, tragically, 
they will be lost. Now notice, if anyone's work, anyone's convert, stay with the context, if anyone's convert or work is burned, he, who's the he? The one who did the converting. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved because he remains faithful, yet so as through fire. He'll have to go through fiery trials as well, but he'll be saved if he remains faithful. But if his converts are not made of the right stuff, if they falter, then they are lost. The one who converted them will suffer some loss. That's exactly what Paul is writing about here in 1 Thessalonians 2. He's saying, if you remain faithful, you will be my crown of rejoicing in the judgment. What if they had not remained faithful? And Paul could not rejoice over them at the judgment. Some loss of reward in that sense of seeing them there. But nonetheless, would that have affected his own personal salvation? No, indeed. It's tragic that some have taken 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 and said this about it. Well, what this says is that you can be sincerely wrong in your religious practice, but if you are sincere and then you find out at the judgment that you were wrong, you'll still be saved, but barely as through fire because you were sincere. The passage has absolutely nothing to do with that. Nothing whatsoever. Sincerity is important, but sincerity must be tied to the knowledge of the truth. That passage is talking about one's converts, and Paul in the last part of our lesson tonight is talking about his converts at Thessalonica, and he is saying, you are my hope, you are my joy, you are my crown of rejoicing. It's like in the Greek games, the crown, the wreath that was given to the victor. You will be that crown for me. A part of that crown for me will be rejoicing over you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming, for you are our glory and joy. Now we've mentioned this before in a different context, but there's something very clearly implied here by the statement, what is it? We will know each other in heaven. We will know each other. Otherwise, how could Paul rejoice over the Thessalonians at the judgment over their being saved if he had no clue as to who they were? Obviously, he's anticipating recognizing them when he sees them and knowing who they are. There are other passages that clearly point out that we will be able to recognize one another in heaven. Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, Philippians 4, verse 1, my joy and crown, very same kind of expression to the Philippians, you're my joy and my crown. I'm going to know you at the judgment, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved, because I look forward to seeing you at the judgment and being with you for all eternity. That's that grand reunion that awaits the faithful. Someone might say, well, if I know who's there, won't I know who's not there? And won't that make me unhappy in heaven? The Lord will work all that out, I can assure you. But I still believe very strongly that we will recognize each other there and that we will understand and appreciate to the fullest extent the justice of God so that those who are not there, who had opportunity to prepare themselves to be there, will understand fully why they're not there. And it will not interfere with our ability to rejoice over those who are. The key is 
I need to make sure I'm one of them. And so do you. And the only way I can do that is by obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ and by living faithfully that gospel until the Lord comes again or until I die, whichever occurs first. And that gospel is here in that all-sufficient, all-powerful Word of God. And you need nothing else to tell you that you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess Him to be the Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And be buried with Him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Because in that burial in water, it is not the water that cleanses, but the blood. But without the blood, there is no cleansing. And without the burial, there is no application of the blood. So says the scripture, clearly and abundantly. And we plead with you to obey it if you haven't tonight. If you need to come home to your first love, as one who's wandered from the truth and knows that that eternal reunion no longer awaits you because you've turned your back upon the only word that can save you, the gospel of Christ, come home in repentance and confession of sin that needs to be confessed in a public way. And we will pray with you and for you to the God who has assured you of his forgiveness if you truly repent. As we stand to sing, we encourage you to come.